Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 30th, 2020, the 49 years and 364 days of Plots edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. It's all about me because my 50th birthday is tomorrow. So I decided to name the show after myself. So just enjoy that. <laughs> There's a lot of acts of narcissism going on in the world right now. I'm glad you've added to the pile. Uh, that is Emily Bazelon, not yet 50, of New York Times Magazine and Yale University, joining from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And with me here in D.C., thank goodness, he is 50, maybe 51. Oh, I don't my even... God, I'm 51. You, I'm, 51. I'm, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm just a, it's a marvel that I didn't trip over my walker getting in here. It's John Dickerson of <laughs> CBS's 60 Minutes in town to do some impeachment journalism for CBS. So check your television for some Dickerson. <laughs> it's always good to get some Dickerson on television. On today's Gab Fest. You know, I started putting clips, like the people I, that I used to find so annoying. I put clips of myself now on my Twitter feed. I'm that person now. Oh, my God. I know. I know. But I don't do it that much. So it's, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> did you name a show after yourself like yeah. I did? <laughs> no, but I'm just, I just want to own that because uh, I just, I feel as though I need to own that. There we go. On today's Gab Fest, the Bolton grenade that has not yet exploded. Will it explode? Will the impeachment trial incorporate John Bolton or not? Will the impeachment trial last beyond Friday or not? Then we are just a few days away from the start of Democratic primary season. Where do we stand as the Iowa caucuses loom on Monday? They loom. They loom. Can caucuses loom? They loiter. I think if you're at a caucus, you loiter. Then the Supreme Court upholds a vile, stupid, un-American Trump policy about immigration. We will talk about that. And, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Leaked details from John Bolton's book looked likely to disrupt the impeachment trial at the beginning of the week and to gut the president's defense. Now, as we tape on Thursday morning, it seems more likely that the Republican caucus in the Senate will prefer to hear and see no evil at all, though speak plenty of evil, and will block Democratic requests for witnesses at the trial, and thus the incredible claims that Bolton has made, not incredible, the totally credible claims that Bolton has made about the president's specific involvement in withholding military aid to the Ukraine in order to get a political favor done for himself, uh, will not be heard, will not be accounted for in the trial. So, uh, Emily, does it seem likely that they are going to block witnesses? Why are they going to do it? And is there any merit to their argument that they should do it? Uh, it does seem likely, I suppose. They are going to do it because they want to acquit President Trump. And so any complicating factor is unwelcome. And it doesn't really matter whether it could change the ballgame or not. Like, if you don't want the end result to be different and you've predetermined it, then why allow new information that could disrupt your plan? And I don't think there is any kind of reasonable argument for not hearing this out. It's directly relevant. It's the first person who directly spoke to President Trump about the tie between withholding the aid and the investigative material that Trump wanted from Ukraine. So, like, this is the firsthand witness that, you know, the Republicans and Trump have said all along didn't exist. He does exist. He was our national security advisor. He was a very high up Trump official. And the notion that we're going to have this proceeding end without hearing from him directly under oath, it just I it it is totally hard to swallow. 
um, politically, just logically. I mean, everything. I feel like it's this really weird drama that's go- like missing its key moment and figure and is just going to sort of peter out. Um John, I want to hear what you think about this, but I also want to talk about whether the Democrats should be calling John Bolton. I mean, they didn't want to take this pressure off the Senate to do it, but— Democrats in the House. You Democrats mean. In I the mean House. Democrats in the House. Right. I'm sorry, yes. I mean Adam Schiff's committee. Well, I think you, you, you've just answered the, your own question, which is they want the center of this— they want this to be um, – uh, for the Senate to have to wrestle with this issue. Um, and then if the Senate decides not to call witnesses, then what's it – then then you know, then I guess the House could try and do something. I, although I suspect that Nancy Pelosi will decide that um, the moment has passed and that they need – in order to keep their majority in the House, they need to go back to tending their fields. And that means making sure they protect those districts that are going to be more at issue and more, more battlegroundy where the where the electorate is not so uh, – not not as liberal and and or who've gotten sick of impeachment but it is amazing because the white house defense team had been arguing there's nobody here who can talk directly about what conversations they had with the president and then when that person shows up they suddenly um don't want to hear from him basically we know the politics of the of why they don't want to hear with him but but it does strike me that when if politicians are traditionally risk averse the members of the senate are making a bet and I felt this way at the beginning of the trial, and now and now it's been proved with the Bolton revelations. But they're making a bet not only that the country will think um, that Donald Trump didn't do anything that's impeachable. They're making a bet not only that the country won't penalize them for not calling witnesses, but they're making a bet that in the future nothing will come out that will be damaging where people could say, you know, you had the opportunity to figure all this out by calling witnesses and you didn't. Therefore, we're going to penalize you. They're assuming none of that stuff's going to take place. Or – they're assuming that the president has so much power to punish them. And we saw some of this on Wednesday when he was tweeting to the Republicans in the Senate, um, has so much power within the Republican Party to punish them if they were to vote for witnesses, that that's more of a risk and a danger than whatever penalty they might play for future shoes that drop um, that would relate to their not having called witnesses. I mean, this fight is absolutely ludicrous because what's funny is that I do think that if you talk to any of these Republican senators, you would find them to be people of honor. I think they believe themselves to be p- people of honor. They suspect – I suspect that for the most part, they act honorably in their own life uh, most of the time. And they probably act with integrity in their own life most of the time. But it is so strange to think these are people who are completely unwilling to act in a way to defend the institution they're supposed to defend and to uphold the institution they're supposed to defend. There's an amazing Ezra Klein tweet thread about this fight over the witnesses. And it's ridiculous because we all know the underlying facts. We now basically know the underlying facts. We know what the president did. We know there is now, with Bolton asserting this, there's incredibly strong firsthand evidence that the president has done this thing, which, which before everyone would have agreed you know, is an offense contravening the Constitution is, you know, if that's not a high crime to cheat to win an election and to undermine congressional legislation, to undermine U.S. foreign policy in order to trump up an investigation of a political opponent in order to win an election, that is not a high crime. Like, I don't even know what it is. And I think if you talk to people a year ago, they would have, every Republican would have agreed with you and that they will not even look at this behavior. They will not even acknowledge it because the system is completely broken because 
the legislature is now a completely non-functional legislature. We're like the Roman Senate. This is like the late Roman Senate. It is an imaginary institution now. And it's it's an absolute catastrophe for the country if this if this legislation this legislature does not act to uh, to defend its prerogatives and to stand up for what it has to do. And just to add just a tiny little thing that's connected to the fact that the president has more power over their political future. And that's the thing they worry about the most. And why does he have that? It's because of the partisanship that we the partisan age we live in, where um, the most partisan members of the Republican Party are the most of the thing that Republican but, senators fear the most. Well, but you know what? Right. They're probably right about the political calculation they're making. Yeah. yeah they are protecting their political future rather than the future of Totally. The institution and the country, they are not saying I'm like bol- – I'm bolstering your point. Yeah. No, no. I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah. I'm saying but isn't that isn't that tragic that people are not willing to say, you know what? It is – my job as a senator is not is not worth sacrificing the institution of the Senate and these these defenses that we've built around this, this over 200 years to ensure that we're not taken over by an autocratic dictator. And instead, they're like, you know what? I get to get reelected. And so I'm going to get reelected. And what a terrible thing to do. I I wish they had more courage. I wish we all had more courage. But the thing is, I feel like we have been walking toward this end for a while and that the incentives are just completely misaligned. And the only thing that will change it is changing elections, which is hard because these are fairly abstract questions about rule of law and democracy. And it's not clear that they are going to determine the next election results. There's, it's a blunt instrument in election. There are a lot of other factors that are going to go into that. And for a lot of people who are not following this closely, this probably doesn't matter that much. So it's a pretty rational calculus. Um, can I – I feel like we have to pause a moment on John Bolton because we all, I think, expressed a lot of skepticism. Yes. <laughs> I know I was skeptical that he was going to come I forward. I was more skeptical. I was most skeptical. I, yeah, I would like I to join, you, join you all in the skepticism yeah, yeah. camp. Anyway, carry on. So what do we make of this? I mean – is this Bolton the truth teller because in the end, like he has this very strong ideology and ideas about what's supposed to happen, but he is like a government servant and official and he was as dismayed as the people who work for him about the highly irregular abuse of power he was seeing. Um, and what are we to make of his silence? Like he could stand up and talk at any moment and make this harder. I also it was fascinating to me to see the entire Republican machine, including the right wing media, just turn on him on a dime. Right. This is a guy who's been on Fox a million times, who was like loyal, fairly heroic, much more consistently conservative in his position taking than Donald Trump. And yet it literally took five seconds for the entire artillery to start firing at him. Yeah. So that let me let's start on that last point, because it's that's happened with basically there are 20 or so people who had the impression that the president was doing all of this in the furtherance of his reelection campaign and not for any other reason that was in the national interest. So 20 or so people got it wrong. This is uh, and all 20 of them have been attacked as either members of the deep state or closet liberals or and many of them were hired by uh, the president who had this have this feeling Bolton being the, the paramount one. And then the president trashed him and now he's being thoroughly trashed. Can that many people all be for their professional life 
hiding these virulent, awful sides of themselves that then are suddenly excavated when they say the wrong thing. I mean, it's just so that that is this has been a pattern um, throughout this process. And the turning on John Bolton has been amazing. John Bolton among many other things, worked in the Reagan Justice Department pushing Robert Bork uh, so that Reagan would actually pick him. I mean, he's been he has been a, a stalwart conservative through all the battles. And now Donald Trump, who has switched parties three, four, five times, I can't remember, was never a conservative, isn't a conservative now, is causing this selling of Bolton. So the question then is, What's Bolton going to do? And and going back to my, my point about the senators, they know his book is going to come out. They know he's going to say things and he's going to say more and other things that they could have heard him say under testimony that they didn't and they decided not to. So I wonder what happens to a Bolton scorned now that um, that that it looks like he might not be called as a witness. And what is he how what does that look like when the book comes out and when he starts talking? Do, well, do you think either of you that that. I mean, the the facts are known. I mean, it's the, the the facts are out now. If we if we posit that what Bolton is saying is true, which I I would posit that it probably is, does it seem to be affecting people? Does it seem to matter? I mean, is it is this feeling like like a significant fraction of the American public now thinks there was a huge cover up and that the Senate is abetting that cover up, or is it no? It hasn't. Well, it hasn't moved uh, anything. The vast majority, big majorities, want witnesses to be called, and you know now the polls are getting specific about Bolton, and if people are following it well enough, they want him to be called. So in the sense that like people want to hear from him directly, there is buy-in on that. Except those polls are a little funky because they show a lot of Republicans want witnesses, and what those Republicans mean is they want Hunter Biden. So inside those polls, if you look at who are the Republicans who really want witnesses to be called, it turns out they're the people who self-identify as the most conservative and the non-college white male voter who's the virulent center of the Trump base. So there's a, there's a little messiness in, the, in, in the, the, those polls that show overwhelming support for witnesses. You know, I also have been thinking about Hunter Biden. I mean, I don't think that this impeachment trial is about Hunter Biden as like his guilt or innocence. But I feel like the country needs to hear from John Bolton. And if it takes having Hunter Biden testify to make that happen, that seems worth it to me. Does that seem like the wrong call to you? Like suddenly I've been thinking, like, why is why is it so off limits to have Hunter Biden show up? I think it's not off limits because it's a political process and anything can happen if that's what it takes to get it. I, I'm with you, Emily. But he, Hunter Biden doesn't have anything to do with the underlying accusations. Like, it's not. Well, he does in the sense that, like, explaining what his role was is relevant to the corrupt intent that Trump had or didn't have when he made this decision, right? Like, that, in that sense, it's not totally off base. But doesn't, isn't the closer way to get at that is what was actually in Trump's head rather than what was the truth of what Hunter Biden Right, uh, it's true. I guess the thing is I keep getting tangled up in the way in which this is called a trial, but it's not a real trial because if it was really a trial, then there would be a question about whether the defendant was going to testify or not. Yeah. And the way you would get at his mindset would be his decision about whether to go on the record about his own mindset. And if he doesn't want to testify because he thinks it's incriminating or just he's not going to testify. Um, that's his constitutional right. And then you could infer it from these other witnesses and judges would make decisions. But we're not in that land. And there's a way in which I think even calling this a trial and using the words of the court of law, which are being so bastardized, is really a problem. 
you know, I was just trying to play out this kind of what happens when Bolton, you know, does his book tour. Um, and you could imagine a situation and, and, you know, I'll say it again. Ben Franklin, when they talked about impeachment, said the point of impeachment was not just to convict, but to exonerate. You could imagine a scenario in which Bolton comes forward. The Republican senators sort his answers as they've sorted every other piece of information and, and conclude that the president was uh, either innocent or guilty, but not not worthy of impeachment. And he, the president is able to claim right. exoneration and Bolton is uh, subsumed under that exoneration. Now, what will happen if he doesn't come as a witness is his book comes out. He not only talks about what we already know, but then in the interview says things like, no, there was never any, ever any evidence he cared about corruption. He cared only about this thing relative to Kevin and says other things that are harmful for the president in the election context, that that might be even more dangerous than if he testified in the actual in the actual Senate. One of the one of the questions that was really interesting that the senators Murkowski and Collins asked of the White House uh, defendants was, do you have any evidence of the president um, raising the issue of corruption before Hunter, he found out right. Hunter Biden was um, connected and they didn't have any evidence. Um, and John Bolton could speak to that as well. If that comes out in the closer in the campaign context, maybe that's you could imagine that being even more damaging than him testifying in the Senate context. Don't you think, John, that there's a way in which the Republicans are holding out hope that Trump is going to succeed in smothering John Bolton, that Bolton's going to get scared? They're hanging up the book in this pre-publication review. They're saying now, you know, it could be months. Maybe they postpone the publication and they kind of muzzle him till after the election and they hope they've scared him off. I mean, it seems to me like he would be that (laughs) – but, like, I can't imagine him keeping quiet for that long. And yet, like, they're clearly hoping they can intimidate him. Well, I, I, probably. And that they hope that that fight will only uh, strengthen the passion Discredit of him. the Trump voters. Um, and that passion will, A, go to the president or, B, not go against them. I mean, they want to keep the the president's strongest supporters off their front lawns, um, and so that's probably the big, the most governing example thing. And then I think they will hope that the Democrats will pick a nominee, and this will that, that who will be so objectionable that will somehow lead to the president's re-election. Um, right. And if you think of the base of Trump's base as only being about Trump, and the only thing that matters is whether something's good for Trump or bad for Trump, then feeding John Bolton to the beast, like sacrifice him is a totally easy call. Like, it's easy for the Trump base to turn on him. They don't care that he worked for the Justice Department and tried to advocate for Robert Bork. They don't care about any of that stuff. And so once you see it through that lens, like, it's very easy to toss him. And secondarily, once you see Senate elections as determined mostly by national issues now, yes. and what's the biggest national issue? The president. Once you see that connection, then their fortunes, even in swing states, are so closely tied to the president's base that 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 only supports your thing further. Here's what I don't understand is John last week you were citing I think as I was as I was working up ahead of steam about this. You were saying well what's what's interesting actually so few people identify politics as their primary sorting mechanism, yeah. the primary way that they define themselves. Yet we're in a situation where I think you know if you if you polled um Trump's voters and you sort of describe the behavior that he's engaged in in the abstract as something a politician engaged in, if you talked to them a year ago and said this is something somebody did, they would agree it is <laughs> wicked and corrupt and and wrong and that no, no one should serve the country who behaved that way. But because some set of allegiances and that, that partisan and tribal identity is so strong, 
uh, they accept it and are willing not just accept it, endorse it, like come out full throatedly for it or not bothered by it, consider his those attacking him to be the wicked ones. Um, so there's clearly something that has gone awry whereby there is an <laughs> for a very large chunk of people in this country, something has overcome their their rational analytical sense about politics and about how they vote. Like it's it's very, very strong. It's strong on both sides, but it's especially strong on the right in this group. And I think you're right that probably most of those people, if you ask them what is their first way they define themselves, they, most people would not say around their political identity. But somehow we've gotten in a situation where people – you know, work with the same people, people like them, they live with people like them, they worship with people like them, they or don't worship with people like them. And there is some kind of massive sorting hat that has put us in these divided places where even if politics isn't your first go to definitional identity, you you have locked into it, it is a piece of who you are, in a way that didn't used to be and it causing you to think tribally first rather than in some other way in ways that that were that wasn't true for most of this 20th century and it's terrible it's absolutely terrible yeah i mean it's um and ezra klein's book on polarization which has just come out um goes through all of this but to give you some indication of what you're talking about the in 2011 there was a um public religion research institute poll that had 60 percent of white evangelicals saying that a public official who commits an immoral act in their personal life um can't fulfill the ethical duties of a public life. So then in 2016, the same question was asked um, and found only 20% of evangelicals responding to the same question in the same way. So from 60% to 20%. So on these baseline issues of morality, and the, there are basically the same, the same number is true um, for, uh, for truth-telling and moral leadership, the numbers have all cratered and crashed. And so... That's the way in which the identity politics and the, the tribal nature uh, has basically not just changed your position on trade or immigration or the deficit, all of which have spun around in head-snapping ways from what the stated policy of the party were, but then all, on all these underlying at attributes on morality, honesty, character, they've all dropped drastically. And so that's the situation we find ourselves in uh, on the eve of the 2020 election. So I feel like there are so many contributing factors to this, right? Because part of what you're seeing is, I think, just a more cynical view. At least that's my interpretation of that drop in those numbers, John, is like politics is a cynical business. It's all about deal making. Don't imagine that your core values, which you still think are important in your personal life, are going to translate into that realm. Imagine it as dirty and transactional. And then, you know, it's the rest of your personal life. It's your church. It's your education, your, your community in which those values play out. Right? I would, I would agree. I would say two, two, two other things. One is that they feel like the other is a virulent threat to everything they hold dear, both in life and in politics. So there are lots of numbers about, in the 50s, they started asking people, would you be okay if your child married somebody of another party? And, and the country was roughly okay with that. Partisans now are not okay with that at all. And so and the number of people who see in the Democratic Party who see Republicans as the enemy, as, as a threat to the fundamental values of American life, I, has uh, jumped considerably. The same is true with Republicans who think Democrats are a threat. So if you think 
the people on the other side, if you think the wolf is at the door, you're willing to accept some um, changes in you, on your side's behavior. And you will sort, you will uh, forgive your side anything if you think that the, the danger of the other side is worse. And then the president has delivered extraordinarily well for the core constituency of uh, his base on taxes, on regulations, on identity, on defense spending, on judges. So negative partisanship plus delivery means I'm willing to tolerate all kinds of things because I'm getting what I want and the other side is absolutely so much worse. Right. I mean, I think the other thing I keep thinking about is like there are lots of reasons that you can always think the other side is contributing to this corrupt transactional, right? Like you can always find something. And I have been thinking about that this in watching Alan Dershowitz um, defend Trump this week. So, I mean, this is to me like one of the most shameful acts of sophistry I've ever seen from a lawyer and the notion that you would have this um, law professor with this vaunted, in some ways, liberal past. And I should disclose, say here, uh, though I wish at the moment it were not true, the Dershowitz clerked for my grandfather before he clerked on the Supreme Court. So this is someone who kind of has those roots, you know, for years has in many ways betrayed them um, on issues, I would argue, like Israel and um, has defended, you know, people like Klaus von Bülow. And so now we're seeing that kind of trial tactic put to use for President Trump. And I think there are all kinds of reasons personally why Dershowitz is doing this. He's changing the channel from Jeffrey Epstein, you know, a sex offender with whom he is closely associated. He complained about being ignored and shunned on Martha's Vineyard last summer. I'm sure that the entire Harvard faculty, you know, if they could do anything to him to signal their dismay and just like utter... uh, I can't even think what the word is. They would do it. You know, they can't. Like, he has academic freedom, and of course, there will be no professional consequences in that sense. But it's been just shocking to watch him. And the argument that he made on Wednesday, where he was essentially arguing for unlimited presidential power. He was he <laughs> used this phrase in the public interest saying that a president who in the public interest is trying to further his own election by doing something like uh, trading uh you know the withholding of aid from Ukraine for dirt on the Bidens like that's okay as long as the president subjectively imagines it's in the public interest. Like this is just the mo I mean, there is it makes no sense on ten levels. And there are five other crazy and ridiculous and risible arguments that Alan Dershowitz has made in the last week. And the entire legal academy and every responsible legal journalist tries to take him down. But it doesn't matter. The Republicans are grasping it. He gets up there with his trial skills and continues to make these points. And like, how can you blame people in the world for watching this and just thinking, like, this is a completely bankrupt system? Like, I feel like Alan Dershowitz is to legal academics right now what Bush versus Gore was to the Supreme Court. Just a, a really fair reason to just lose faith in the entire enterprise, even though, of course, like, that's not fair because he is being also, um, you know, every legal academic has been saying he's wrong. It, it still just has that kind of terrible poisonous effect. Just to read the quote, it, it, this is Dershowitz. If a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. 
that was the nub of that argument that you were saying, which if you read 15 seconds of the Constitutional Convention debates would have made all of the men who nailed the windows shut in that room break the windows and run screaming from the room because it's a total perversion of the way they thought about power and the presidency. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Today, we're going to talk about the Felicia Sanmez. I'm not sure if that's how you say her name, but I'm guessing that. Uh, Kobe Bryant, Washington Post kerfuffle and how the Post screwed that up. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. The Iowa caucus is on Monday. It is the closest race that has ever been in the Iowa caucus history. We have four candidates, four of them, who are polling above the 15% threshold. We have Sanders and Biden at the top in the low 20s, with Sanders clearly having some momentum and taking the first position at the moment as we approach Monday. Buttigieg and Warren are in the mid-teens. Klobuchar is still in there at 9%. They've never... We've never had that many candidates clustered that high before. So, John, what as you as you go into this weekend and get ready for Iowa on Monday, what does it look like is happening? Is does Sanders have momentum? Is that is that true? Is he taking a lead? Does that matter? Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, he certainly has momentum in the in the listeners. San- just an FYI, John has a beautiful, incredibly complicated color chart in front of him. It's the 538 who's ahead in Iowa chart. All right, um, nice. My go-to, my go-to source for all polling and um, um, and wisdom. Um, so it is, it is a beautiful chart. Um, but it, it, some things we know are true. Sanders, the Sanders versus Warren question, which is, which was up in the air, um, has, it looks like it has sorted and Sanders has come out ahead of Warren for those people who share their um, view of the world. Um, where things stand with respect to these, the um, liberals versus moderates, just to, to use to in, well, some imprecision there in the sorting, but between that all remains to be seen in, the, in what goes ahead. We do know what's happening is there is a Sanders, uh, sort of a Sanders freakout, a lot of writing and thinking and talking about how um, it would be a disaster if he became uh, the Democratic Party's nominee, and some really interesting conclusions being drawn by his supporters about what the country needs, which relies on accepting some things about what Donald Trump has done that I think is really fascinating in terms of looking at the country and saying, well, we need our version of Donald Trump and what then that would, if you play that out, you know, just one question that raises is Donald Trump is a uh, extremely powerful high threshold of pain tolerant person for what he is pushing forward and does it in a way that many people advocating for Sanders um, find wholly objectionable. Nevertheless, if you were going to be the left's version of that, breaking apart the system, are you going to have the Teflon and starchiness that Trump has to confront the system? And where do you see that and how does that play out um, interests me. Emily, what do you think is the capacity for Iowa caucus goers to surprise on Monday? Do you think, I mean, maybe this is a better question for you, John. It's like, how likely are results in Iowa to be close to the incoming polls? Because usually with elections, they're very 
with things like primaries, they're very close. But in this caucus, is it likely to be very close? Well, I think it, it, it depends how those second choices and how people when you because in in the caucus you can reapportion your support, and that that's always the big surprise. Um, in Iowa. So I think there's a greater chance there might be a surprise than there would be relative to, say, New Hampshire, I think. Uh, although, as I say that, I feel... Uh, but I, you can bet on the possibility of surprise, I think, is fine the place to be. I mean, what you're talking about is the 15% threshold in the caucuses, right? Like, in the room where you caucus, if your candidate doesn't get to 15%, you have a chance to switch your support to someone else. So it's a sort of form of ranked choice voting in this limited way. And that, I think, does add more um, uncertainty to the outcome. And that is certainly a piece of it. The other piece of it is that a caucus is intrinsically a – higher threshold of investment to participate. It right. just like requires more work. You need more time. Time consuming. And so it's it it's likely to get a more engaged set of voters or more com- more kind of committed to a particular candidate set of voters who have been galvanized to show up. So turnout and who who has the more enthusiasm is also likely to register and which particular groups is it easier to get to a caucus and who has time to do it, which wh- whose candidate which candidate has voters who have more time to do it. So that those are all elements that may, I think uh, shape it. Emily, we talked last week. I just need to repeat my fury at the New York Times, which spent months creating an endorsement that managed to have exactly zero impact because of how they rolled it up. I thought we pretty much flogged this we one. Did. We, we have did. more to we say did. about this. We did. But I'm just – on <laughs> Elizabeth Warren's behalf, I'm getting angry. because. But the Des Moines Register endorsed her this week. Do you get any sense that right. like that that Warren, who whose campaign I still – you know, is the one I, I really hold out a lot of hope for and wish – would take off, that that there's any chance that that endorsement or that anything that's going on in Iowa could boost her in a way that could help her recover? I guess what I wonder is whether the backlash to Bernie, which was strong this week, I mean, there was the register endorsement for Warren, there were pieces by Jonathan Chait and David Frum just pointing out from their point of view the wild risk Democrats would be taking by choosing Bernie because he's so far to the left of the American electorate. I wonder if those will sink in with voters in Iowa. I mean, there's this interesting dynamic going on in which, you know, I think a lot of Democrats weren't interested in spending a lot of time attacking Bernie Sanders. They just figured, like, this campaign wasn't going to succeed because he wasn't going to be able to capture a large enough share of the Democratic primary, and it would kind of take care of itself. And because his supporters are passionately committed to him, it didn't seem like a good idea to go around alienating them. If he wins Iowa and New Hampshire and possibly Nevada, is it going to be too late? Because certainly at that point, everyone is going to be taking it very seriously and trying to stop the train. The- um, and and I, I ask that question not because I think like it's so – I, I ask it not for sort of policy reasons but political ones. I, I want to make two points about that because first of all, I, another Warren angle here, which is that one of the things that definitely happened, I've, I read a piece about this now, I can't remember where I read it, is that Warren took all the fire on the policy positions yes. that both she and Sanders hold. So Warren rolled out this Medicare for All um, funding proposal, which from a policy perspective may have been very smart, but from a political perspective has been absolutely disastrous for her because it's 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 put a, whatever it is, $20 trillion uh, albatross around her neck. Price tag. And Sanders has not had to have the same defense of, of his policies proposals, which are 
if anything, more expensive and less articulated and less clear than Warren's. And so she's been able to skate on that stuff. She took all the bullets and it's really wounded her. Uh, and he has not had to suffer. And he's he's allowed to live in his his realm of fantasy, which I think is fine. I mean, we have every conservative candidate has been allowed to live in their realm of fantasy with their policy proposals. And I think that's okay. It's just that Warren was not permitted to live in it. And then, so there's that piece of it. And then I do think like seeing the brainiac center left of Chait and Fromm and and Will Salatan, actually, I thought wrote a great piece in Slate too. Yeah, uh, that was a good piece. Arise and say like, look, this is going to be really dangerous. Not necessarily because Sanders... I think some of it is that Sanders' positions are so far to the left. That is one problem. The other is that socialism moniker is a disaster for Democrats. It is going to be a disaster if they have a socialist who is running. It's it's basically it 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 makes it so easy for Trump Trump to demonize, to skirt his own appalling failings, and to to uh, just make it all about scaring the public about this other person. Who, who's on the right and hit the other person representing like the Soviet Union practically. It's going to be a disaster if they have a socialist. And I just, just to tack on a little bobble to that is that people may listen and say, well, they've been calling Democrats socialists since, since Harry Truman, which is, of course, quite true. But um, the argument that Chait and Salatan make is that with, with Bernie, uh, they don't make this argument, but I will, in an era of negative partisanship in which that tends to be the way that voters go, the negative charge about your side um, does animate does animate voters in a way that it didn't with Truman. Secondly, there is actual and there's footage of, of of Sanders playing with communists right. as opposed to you know if yeah. you call Joe Biden a communist, it does it it sticks more is the argument with with Sanders. Well, he calls himself a socialist, right? So Truman didn't call himself a socialist. Right, right. Yes, that's... Um, well, and there's footage of him, like, singing This Land is Your Land, you know, with Russians, like, years ago, very happily. Like, right, It there. it's true. He did spend his honeymoon in Russia, right? Like, he, he did. there was that <laughs> affinity. I would definitely sing This Land is Your Land with anybody. I would sing it with, with Kim Jong-un. Right. I but, love that song. So the, the, the concern uh-huh. expressed... You're not ready for president. Yeah. And the concern expressed with those, just to go to a voting group, is suburban women, suburban Republican women who aren't going to vote for Donald Trump could be given a reason to vote for him because they could be so scared about, you know, whatever the socialism of Bernie... And by the way, the person that might scare them is not Donald Trump. It might be some Democrat who comes out and says... I, I can't, we can't have Bernie Sanders be our president. And then that position becomes more acceptable to a group of people who've written off and stopped listening to the president. This is the, this is the fear. I mean, we should also say it is completely possible that all of this is going to end in Joe Biden being the nominee, right? That enough Democrats will say, wait a second, this is not what we want. This is not what we're going to work. And the alternative won't be Elizabeth Warren for the reasons that you were laying out, David. It will be Joe Biden. And when you're looking for the candidate who has the best chance to win Pennsylvania, that is like a perfectly rational case to make. And I also felt better when I read, I think Laura McGahn wrote the case for Joe Biden in Vox this week. And what reassured me was looking at the policy proposals and realizing how much the field has pulled and the moment has pulled Biden to the left. Now, whether he's really going to deliver on those things, because he often says things that make him seem like so much a a candidate of the past establishment, that I think can still give liberal Democrats real pause. But if you're, you know, like, I'll just stop there. 
wonder what the moderate wing of the party will do after some of this sorting takes place in in um, in Iowa and and uh, New Hampshire. What happened in 1996 with Republicans is Lamar Alexander of all people um, came in third in Iowa and people like went, oh my gosh, Lamar might be the guy because, you know, Dole was too old and the conservatives were, were too uh, starchy and um, Lamar! And that was, and that ended in New Hampshire. But so the question is, will that happen? Will people go, Klobuchar! Or will uh, Klobuchar not do very well, <laughs> Buttigieg not do very well, and people will say, okay, the the Bernie uh, threat is, is, um, is real and we must now all coalesce behind Joe and the sorting goes and then boom, that happens quickly. Or does it become a fight among the moderates, which all works very well for Bernie Sanders um, because then there's no real like safe alternative to him because they're all carving each other up in that lane. I remember one of the most enjoyable stories I ever did. I think I did this in 2000. Maybe it was in 99. The premise of the piece was why would you give money to Lamar Alexander's doomed presidential campaign? And so I called up people who had given him money. And one of the things that people would say, they all had this bank shot theory, which was that 96, he was you know, 9,864 votes from finishing second in New Hampshire. And had he finished second in New Hampshire, the whole race would have been different and he would have been the nominee. And so it's just, we just need to kind of, he was that close to being our mm-hmm. nominee then. And so now we got to give him a chance. And Lamar <laughs> Alexander, great, you know, no, no shade on him. He was a perfectly honorable Good senator, good politician, you know, for his party, whatever. But it was just – I loved talking to these people who were – you know, who wasted whatever thousand dollars they were wasting on that campaign. Can I say one more thing about Bernie? Like the people who are passionately devoted for to Bernie, you can – understand and appreciate their reasons, right? I mean, they look at the political landscape and they think, well, everyone said there was no way Donald Trump could win and he won. And like, we want the person who we know is going to come through for us. And once he's out there making his authentic case for this alternative, which is about recognizing how the system is rigged, that's what Bernie, I think, legitimately shares with Trump. And he's offering such a better alternative, like people are going to get it. And they're going to vote for him. And also, just to just to take that, take up that line of argumentation and rebut what I said earlier, they could also say this corrective needs to take place. And who cares how it takes place? Because it's going to take place better with Bernie Sanders than it is with the Donald Trump presidency. It's going to take place better with Bernie Sanders than it is a, a Joe Biden presidency. So sure, it might be a big question mark about how this revolution actually gets carried out because of the way the country is and also because of Bernie Sanders' particular attributes. But we can all figure that out later. The most important thing, as you mentioned earlier, Emily, elections are blunt instruments. And this instrument just needs to be played by someone to totally mangle the the, um, the instrument metaphor. All right, last quick question on this. So every time Iowa comes around, there is this question about, is the Iowa caucus a good form of an election? Is it useful to have this odd, unusual caucus format where people wait, where there's this form of ranked choice voting, where you have to, you know, everyone has to gather together and spend an evening together, hard to vote, lots of time. And then there's the question of, is Iowa the right state to start anything in so rural, so white? I kind of go back and forth. Part of me thinks, actually, this is a great way to start the campaign because it's such a test of it's a test of enthusiasm. It's a test of organizing ability. It's a test of retail campaigning ability. You get higher information voters who are willing to participate, and that like that sends a signal to the country. Oh yeah, the higher information people really do feel like the, this guy or this woman is the is the best candidate. 
So that seems good. I mean, it would be better if they did this in Michigan or Georgia than in Iowa. But in general, I think I'm I think I'm slightly in favor, despite myself. I'm coming down really hard on the other side. I mean, first of all, it's infuriating that Iowa plays this role because it's so white and rural. But also, it's just infuriating that the same state plays it every time. Like, that is wrong. I am so tired of not having my vote count. It drives me crazy. Like, there is nothing better about the people in Iowa and New Hampshire than the rest of us. We should get our turn or they should do it on the same day or something. It's so, like – drastically unfair. Actually, can I just quit? John, this will be the last word on this. Quickly. Why <laughs> do the parties... No, we haven't why, even talked about... I have to rebut you on the caucuses. Okay, I get to say yeah. that but point. Why but go do ahead. The, why don't they rotate it? Why is it that Iowa, New Hampshire, and now Nevada and South Carolina get this lock? Well, it's a complicated historical uh, thing, but it goes back to your point about the death of the parties. And the, the local parties and their traditions... Are more powerful, and if you're running for office and you think you've got a chance in Iowa, you suck up to the party and you want Iowa to be the to be the first. And so, um, and also, by the way, you've been campaigning for years in Iowa, and you've been campaigning for other candidates in Iowa, and so you've been building up all these chits with the game as it is now played. And so, you've banked a lot of things. So, what you would need to do, and it w- I think it would be great if every time they just picked a new state. And there were none of the normal – because there's a lot of built-in stuff in these states that leads to patterns of behavior that you would want to shake up. You know, you'd want – you wouldn't want the local poobah who's really important to have as much power. You'd want a new poobah who had to actually be freshly convinced, not not somebody who had been convinced in 1968. Right, but what, so why – I mean everyone knows this. Why isn't – why doesn't some candidate who's going to be a strong candidate – they, everyone knows it's going to be a strong candidate. Say, you know well, what? We're going to shake it up, and we're going to we're going to we're going to do it in California Mc, first. Now. Well, I, McCain tried a version of that when he didn't play in Iowa and was was nominated pres- uh, to the party by by playing in New Hampshire. And others have others have tried that. Um, there's not a strong enough candidate to change the party. Also, once you get strong enough, you'd have to be president, and then you got other stuff to worry about. So um, I, it would require the electorate basically saying forcing the Democratic Party to do this. You'd have to have the reform bubble up through, I think, the Democratic Party systems, which is how the superdelegates got watered down and how the apportionment of one thing that's different is Iowa doesn't, I mean, the the delegate apportionment is more um, spread out, which leads to a longer, possibly longer contest. Also, the way people can stop, um, if they want to, you know, reform starts at home, just don't put so much weight on Iowa. When somebody scores the first basket in basketball, people don't leave the stadium. They they expect a contest in which people shoot additional baskets and the basket go in for one team and the other team. And then, you know, at the end of the game, there's a score. What a metaphor. I want to go back to your um, affection for the caucuses, David. I used to feel this way. And I remember covering them in 2008 with some affection. It's a terrible idea to up the cost of participating in the democracy you end up with a smaller group of people and yeah, they're committed and they're high information, but also they're not everybody. Like what we should have is a democracy that lowers the barriers as much as possible so that we hear from as many people as possible. And I mean, this is a slight tangent, but there's lots of research about like in cities, when you have neighborhood groups, when you have local like zoning meetings, who comes? Who comes are like the loudest people, the retirees, the people with the time. I was just listening to – I'll 
go find the name of this political science professor who has this book called, I think, Neighborhood Defenders, which is like another way of thinking about the NIMBY problem. And she crunched a ton of data in New York State. And it showed that these were people who are older and whiter and more conservative than the communities they came from. And they had a kind of lock on the local process because they were showing up to these meetings. Like that's not – it should not be the test. That should not be what decides policy. Hey, GapFest listeners, if you are a Slate Plus member, you're going to get a treat. You've just heard us preview the Iowa caucuses, but we're going to do a post view of the Iowa caucuses. On Monday night, we're going to tape a special Slate Plus episode of the show Following the caucuses, after we have some results, we're going to talk about what they portend for the coming election. So we should have that show to you early on Tuesday. If you are a Slate Plus member, you will get it. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, become a Slate Plus member today. Go to slate.com slash plus, and you'll get that extra show on Tuesday. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Emily, the Supreme Court this week vacated a district court order which barred enforcement of a new Trump administration rule change around what's called the public charge uh, rule, a public charge principle. What happened? What What is the public charge issue? What did the court do? And why is it so unbelievably appalling? So we've had this um, phrase, public charge, in immigration law since the 19th century. And the very general idea is that when immigrants come to this country, they shouldn't be people who it seems like will become a burden on the public purse. Like they're not supposed to be sucking up all our tax money. It has been very conservatively interpreted, this phrase, for years. So like – Or I suppose I should say, actually, let's break it down a little differently. If you come here and you're not documented or you're even if you are trying to get on a path to citizenship, for the first five years, you're not eligible for Medicaid and food stamps and other basic social safety net programs. So this notion that you're like a burden on the taxpayers is just false in that context. Once you've been here for five years, if you're trying to get a green card, then yes, you become eligible for those programs. What's going to happen now is people are going to be really scared about applying for any of that because there's going to be this very subjective test where the government could then decide to deny you your green card or citizenship based on your past participation. It's pretty technical and hard to understand, and people are just going to get super nervous. And they're also going to be scared of signing up their U.S.-born U.S. citizen 
in children for right. these programs. Right. Even though those kids are still eligible, they're going to think, well, wait a second, like who knows what's going to happen? And you can hardly blame them for that fear. But the other biggest problem is the people who are trying to come in from other countries who aren't even here yet. Because essentially what this um, new very subjective test does is suggest that people from poor countries could become public charges. And so this is like the real reason why Stephen Miller, Trump's immigration official who is so right wing and xenophobic and um, I would say bigoted, this is why he cares so much about this, because it's a way of changing the equation of where American immigrants come from and making more of them come from predominantly white, more well-off countries. So that's the real sort of illness at the center of the shift. Can you, I know you said it was complicated, but can you explain what the test is that, that denies citizenship? It's it's basically it's some test of your, of whether you can, um, don't have to go on public programs, but is it by, by income? Is it by? It's, it's about the amount of time yeah, that you've spent. Okay. I it's think. the amount of time, yeah, it's the amount of time you spent and taking, you know, a set of some number of different public aid Programs okay. which range, which include, but the point now is, Medicaid it's not just a formula, as I understand snap. it. It's also a prediction about right. from your past behavior, and it looks like it could change. So even if you yeah. thought, anyway, that's yeah. yeah could, to, another, just a legal question, Emily, just because I wasn't sure I understood. It. So a district court had barred enforcement of it, and the Supreme Court basically said, "We're not getting to the merits of this, but we don't want you, the district court, barring enforcement nationwide." And so we're saying they can go ahead and do this. And there will presumably be other litigation to try to stop the enforcement of it at a nationwide level, which will get to the Supreme Court, which will then uphold it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think that is what's likely going to happen. So yes, there have been a few court cases bubbling up. A couple of courts of appeals sided with the Trump administration. And what we're talking about here is whether the government has the right to make this kind of rule and checked all the boxes for making the rule. Uh, you know, we've seen this with the travel ban and with the census. Um, the government is getting better at just like the basic function of rulemaking, which is under the control of the executive branch. There was one district court that issued a nation wide injunction against allowing this public charge rule to go into place. And remember, this is all at the preliminary stage of the litigation where all the legal arguments haven't been fully thought through, but the judge has decided, like, do I let this go into effect? That judge said no. And that's the order that the Supreme Court overturned by a vote of five to four. There's a separate side big legal argument going on right now about nationwide injunctions. And so Justice Gorsuch took the opportunity to write an, an opinion saying nationwide injunctions are bad. We shouldn't let one district court prevent a law from going into effect for the entire country. Since he had the votes this time to overturn that injunction, the court didn't reach the merits of that bigger question. But that's also looming out there because this notion that you can have some one judge make an order, conservatives on the Supreme Court don't want um, liberal judges in the district courts to be stopping the Trump administration from doing stuff. It's interesting. I, one of the things that I, I, I obviously think this is an appalling, 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 appalling rule and appalling rule change. And it's it's immoral and <laughs> wicked. And one person argues it's maybe the ec most economically consequential decision of the Trump era because it is going to bar hundreds of thousands of people who would come to the United States and be economically productive citizens. And we are now preventing those those uh, future Americans from from and their children from being becoming Americans. 
and and the and all that the was actually an article in Forbes. It was like a pro yeah. business yeah. article, right? Yeah. It was saying this is incredibly short sighted from the point right. of view of American capitalism. Yeah. Yes, I would say that. But actually, what, as I was reading about this, I was thinking, well, if I'm a judge, like I can, I actually think there is. I would divide these things in two. I think this public charge the way they're enforcing it is wrong and wicked. And, and I hope whoever's the president next overturns it and goes back to a different system. But I think it's, it, is, it is much worse to punish people who are already in the country than it is to, to bar people who, may, uh, who won't ever get here. So even though it's terrible for the country as a whole in the long term that these immigrants don't come, I think it is, it is not so immoral to n- not let them come. I think it's really immoral for somebody who's been in the country who's like trying to make their way to suddenly change the rules on them and say, you can't get Medicaid, you can't get SNAP, you probably can't get this stuff for your children because you're too scared, you can't get Pell Grants or other forms of aid for higher education, or we're going to boot you That's not actually on the list, by the way, as far as I know. I just don't want to be spreading more confusion. It's not on the list. It isn't on the list, but you can imagine it could be People being nervous about it, but I just don't want us to be putting false information out Sorry. So the idea of, of, of enforcing it for people who will not get into the country seems less bad than enforcing it on people who are here who have been living here under one set of rules and are now could be completely screwed over because of decisions they've had to make to support themselves. It just seems that seems deeply, deeply, deeply immoral. These are people who are trying to become Americans and to to alter the rules in this appalling way is makes me sick. We should well, just also the notion of taking away, especially like basic health care from people. Like, what if people don't feel like they can get their kids vaccinated, and then we have a measles outbreak that is somehow tied to this? That is not that far fetched a scenario. Or you just have kids who are like not getting preventive dental care. It just all of that stuff is it's really dismaying in a rich country to imagine being that um, just. I mean, stingy doesn't even get there. But it, and it's a reminder of what we were talking about earlier, which is the power of, of the executive to do wide sweeping and big things in a system where Congress can't uh, – you would want Congress to handle these kinds of issues because Congress represents the most diverse, broad electorate of America and therefore could – well, just as better as more representative, but it ain't doing that kind of work. And so you have, this is a way in which both – the president delivers just another way in which he's delivering for those people who like him, but then also for whoever replaces him has their opportunity to use the administrative state and rulemaking and all the rest to make these kinds of change to reverse it back. So it's just another the primacy of the presidency in affecting lots and lots of people. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are raising a glass to celebrate my birthday, as I'm sure you will be, all you listeners this weekend, what are you going to be chattering about as you toast me? John. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm sorry. Gonna... I was just imagining. I was literally in my head imagining all of our listeners toasting me, <laughs> and nation... I forgot to. I forgot to direct the question to you. The nation <laughs> toast. The, well, and 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 what, for what for what better reason uh, is there to have, hold a toast than for David uh, Plotz's birth? And just... I think people should toast him um, on Twitter or send in the toast that no. they that <laughs> Stop. they. Stop. All oh of this, my this God. has all been what ironic. Is going on? Minute, it's been ironic. I don't. It's been ironic. I don't really care about and, my birthday. And I just da- want to note that. And David's irony is a thing for which we toast him. Um, anyway, my uh, chatter is about a piece that was written um, back in June of 2018 by um, a friend of the um, of the Gab Fest, Amanda Ripley. She wrote a piece, which she updated in January of uh, last year, called Complicating the Narratives. And basically what it is is she decided after the um, – 
after the election of 2016 that journalists weren't covering doing our job the way we should, that we hovered at the edges of conflict in America instead of doing uh, what we should do, which is help people get some control over uh, over conflict or at least get through that conflict. And so what she did was she spent a, a lot of time with people who make it their profession to study conflict, study how to get around and through conflict, and use that to build better tools for journalism. I, I saw her speak um, when I was down at the Pointer Institute, and um, this piece is basically the the written version of her of her talk. And it's about how journalism should be done, but it also has great uh, thoughts in there about how we all communicate and also how we interpret the journalism and the conflict that's so much a part of our daily lives. So I really recommend it. It's on uh, Medium. It's called Complicating the Narratives by Amanda Ripley. Emily, what is your chatter? It doesn't I have to be about me. Doesn't, I'm just saying it doesn't have to be about me. <laughs> this isn't about you. Huh? God, that's so shocking. Um, okay. So I've gotten pulled into thinking about New York State's bail reform law in the last week because there's been a lot of fear-mongering about it. And some of it has centered on a case involving a woman named Tiffany Harris who hit three Orthodox Jewish women in the street in Brooklyn and um, yelled something anti-Semitic at them. Then she got out without bail, and then she hit somebody else. And no one was seriously injured, but this has been put forward as like this terrible hate crime. Uh, Attorney General Bill Barr actually decided to charge Harris with a federal hate crime this week, which is really upping the ante in a way that is all about politics, not law, I would argue. So this has all been kind of dismaying to see people make such a big deal out of this case. And so I was so heartened this week when one of the Orthodox Jewish women in this case, whom Harris had struck, came forward to say, I've been dismayed to watch politicians exploit what happened to use it against bail reform. I want her to get treatment and not be subject to money bail. And that's a quote from Elise Maester to the New York Daily News. And it was just such a welcome example. You know, here you are, you're at the center of this news controversy. You have the microphone for a minute and you say the compassionate thing. Like you say the thing that actually makes sense in the moment that isn't about othering the person who is on the um, the assaulting side of this. And for me, I think especially it felt like this moment where someone was really putting her Jewish values right out there. Like you're thinking about healing, about making the world a better place, about what's better in the long run. Like this is not someone, it sounds like Tiffany Harris is not someone who has some like deep-seated violent um, antipathy toward Jews. Sounds like someone who needs some help. And so for one of the people she hit to say that, that, that just um, made me feel better. My chatter is uh, about the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the death camp in Poland, the Nazi death camp in Poland. Um, many moving stories about that come out. I, I was particularly taken by one in The Economist, which gathered, I don't know if they gathered the data or Yad Vashem, the uh, Israeli Holocaust Institution Museum, gathered it. And it is a map of where Auschwitz's 1.1 million victims came from, of which about 736,000 have been individually identified. Uh, so it is; it shows sort of literally with dots on a map where these folks were um, before the they were transported to Auschwitz and murdered. It's really interesting, and it, it shows that Hungary, in particular, was a huge source of the victims of Auschwitz. Netherlands, 
and, but that they truly came from all over Germany and Poland, of course. Uh, but they truly came from all over. And it also, this is an article, has a set of data about the Holocaust and Holocaust survivors generally. It identifies, it tries to count how many Holocaust survivors are currently alive, which was interesting. And so they, what they said is anyone who was alive in, a, a, a Jew who was alive in the region of Nazi domination during the war, who is alive today. And it's about 400,000, which is a lot more than I expect, although probably many of those were very young children at the time. And most of those, half of those live in Israel. So there are almost 200,000 people who survived the Holocaust who live in Israel still today. But they expect that number to, of course, that will gradually go to zero, but it will go to, it's going to drop precipitously given demographics in coming years. Anyway, it's a very interesting story. Listeners, you have sent us some good chatters again this week. You tweeted them to us at Slate GabFest. And uh, one of you, David Foreman, David Foreman emailed me directly uh, with his listener chatter, which I was thought was super interesting. And it's about the secession movement that is uh, now occupying southwestern Virginia and West Virginia. And there is a movement in West Virginia because of some of the changes in the Virginia legislature and the some gun uh, gun limits that the Virginia legislature is passing. So part, conservative parts of Virginia are proposing to secede into West Virginia. And West Virginia... West Virginia's governor and both houses of the legislature in West Virginia have now invited counties in southwestern Virginia to come join West Virginia, which is super weird and unsettling. So check it out. I don't, that is super weird. It's probably not possible. I don't think states are divisible. It doesn't sound like something that is constitutional because I don't think you can redivide the territory that's in the states. I think they actually like accounted for that. I don't know. It does sort of say like, well, this would be even exacerbate our divisions but it, politically, yeah. it might be better for Virginia. I don't even know. Who knows? I don't think they can do that. I don't think it can be done. I'm just anyway. going to say that. <laughs> also, Jerry Falwell Jr. is supporting it, so I know it's terrible. So before we go to credits, I just want to say um, a lot of you listen to this episode and may not subscribe to the GabFest. One of the things you could do that would really help us is to actually subscribe to the show. That way you'll get new episodes the second they're published. You don't have to go look for it. You don't have to go find it. Just subscribe. Whatever place you're listening to us now, you surely can subscribe to the GabFest. So please go do that. It is very helpful to have actual subscribers, not just one-off listeners. We don't want you one-off listeners. I mean, yes, we do. We do want you one-off listeners, but we really want subscribers. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Rosemary Belson helped here in D.C. with me and John. Ryan McAvoy, I assume, helped Emily in New Haven. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. And June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet your cocktail chatter to us there. For Emily and John. So nice having John. I'm going to pat John. I'm patting John. I'm I David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? How you doing? The, uh, there was an interesting kerfuffle this week uh, following the death of Kobe Bryant in, obviously, in a helicopter accident. We're not going to talk about Bryant's death directly. We're going to talk about is the media story that, that mushroomed out afterwards when a reporter for the Washington Post, Felicia Sanmez, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Felicia Sanmez, but I don't actually know if I am. Soon after Brian's death was announced, she tweeted out a link to a Daily Beast story, a very good Daily Beast story from 2016, about 
the rape charge that was filed against Bryant back in the early 2000s. That rape charge, uh, he was never he never went to trial for it. The victim wouldn't testify, and then Bryant then settled a civil case. But if you look at the underlying facts, it's not a good set of facts for Bryant. It's like there's very compelling evidence of some misbehavior on his part and possibly, you know, actual rape. Uh, but we it will never be litigated. It was not litigated at the time. And so we don't know. But but there was this quite good story about it. Sanmez having tweeted this out without comment. She just tweeted the story. Uh, I think she I don't think there was a comment. I think she just tweeted it, retweeted it, um, was almost immediately suspended by the Washington Post by editor Marty Barron for violating Washington Post standards. There was a quick pressure campaign. People were outraged at the outrage against her. She herself was subject to a massive amount of Twitter vitriol, death threats, the usual nastiness. And the Post rescinded the suspension after a day or so. And she's taken a victory lap around it. But Emily, thoughts on this? I mean, I was just so upset about uh, the Washington Post not supporting Felicia Sanmez in this moment. I mean, look, I understand that Kobe Bryant means a lot as a basketball player to many people. And the fact that he has this credible rape allegation in his past, lots of people don't want to hear about it. But what I felt like Felicia Sanmez was doing was saying, like, hey, this is also part of the record. And that seems like completely worthwhile, legitimate territory for a journalist to be occupying, even right in the moment when somebody's died. You don't have to put the complete record out there. And I just found the unfeeling nature of the Washington Post response to her to be deeply unsettling, or at least it seemed to be totally unfeeling from what we have heard from the Post. I mean, I understand that there is this like deeper, really tricky question about the presence of journalists on Twitter. And I actually thought Charlie Warzel for The Times this week wrote a good opinion piece just laying out the dilemmas. I think about this all the time. And I don't feel at all confident or certain about what I'm allowed to do on Twitter, how it's supposed to work. There is this real inexorable um, appeal of saying things that are sharp and incisive and controversial because that's how you get more followers and attention. And as Charlie was saying, news organizations want bigger profiles for their reporters. And yet there are also these hidden lines that you're not supposed to cross. And I don't feel like the social media or, uh, policies that The Times or The Post or anyone has come up with really get at the dilemmas here, or at least like they suggest that we're supposed to be very conservative in our social media postings which is generally what I tend to do. And that then one sees lots of other reporters not sure. handling Twitter that way and getting what looked like benefits from it. And so it's really confusing to um, understand the relationship between the policy and the actual enforcement and application of it. But there's also the general principle and then there's the specific case here, which is, the, which is also a problem because... Um, yes, agreed. The, the longstanding question of... of when and how to assess someone's life in the moment of their death. Wasn't Shakespeare who said, speak no ill of the dead? Um, Actually, I think it's just an old Latin people, And then what responsibility journalists have in those moments, um, pure and separate and apart from the, from the financial goals of journalism, to, which is to stay in business. Um, and then there's this... The other problem, which is, okay, let's leave Kobe Bryant and what actually happened this week out of the out of the conversation for just a moment. In, in, in abstract terms, 
When you speak on Twitter, it's context free. It's in a highly charged. It's basically in the completely non-journalistic atmosphere, in which context is gone. Yes. Uh, and so... Editors are gone. Editors are gone. <laughs> and so it's a difficult place to make a good point under any circumstances. And yet, on the other hand, um, in the pace and... Com- if you want to... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.